Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, so hi, everybody. Um, I miss you guys, and I'm so glad you came back. I, I was gone for a week. I was able to go to Arkansas for a week, and um, man, it was so beautiful, and I got to sit on a lake and be with some people, and so that was good because I'm tired of being by myself. <laughs> so I'm ready, to, I'm ready for them to open some stuff up, and uh, I'm ready to put my arms around all of you. But anyway, uh, Kay is my friend. You've met her before. She is from Georgia, and she is one of the funniest Christian comedians I have ever known. Um, but there is, um, there is a lot about Kay that you may not know. And um, she's had quite the life, and she is quite the woman of God. And so after our lesson, um, two weeks, you know, two weeks ago, when we talked about Tamar, Kay and I talked for a while after that. And I just really felt like, um, instead of we we're going to hold off on professor proverb today, um, he, he'll be back with us next week, but we're going to give Kay an opportunity to share just a few minutes, a little bit of what she's been through in her life and to be honest um just how god has impacted her life and has kept her from being what we refer to to tamar a desolate woman mm -hmm. and so i would just like her to share a little bit um of her life story so okay you ready ready as i'll ever be take it away girlfriend uh thank you um, well, first of all, I appreciate Shannon uh, sharing y'all with me and uh, sharing me with y'all. I do say y'all. I live in Georgia. Um, I can't ever start giving my testimony without just um, kind of starting um, at the beginning. Don't worry. We're going to be done by midnight. <laughs> um, Shannon's got a pizza coming for all of you. But um, I look back at um, my life where I believe that Satan set a snare at a very young age. And maybe the snare is just that we live in a fallen world. And so in a fallen world, um, there's going to be sin. There's going to be self-will run riot. And, and that's what happened to me at three years old. Um, I was put in a situation at my maternal grandmother's house who was raising four teenage uh, boys that were part of the foster care system. Three of them she had had since they were toddlers. One of them had just been there temporarily. And in his short time, uh, I think he was only there about three months, he stole their car, killed their cat, and um, started abusing me. And the other three followed suit. Um, that's where it began. And I lived through that for the next 15 years, um, from three to 18. I always say I was a victim as a child, but then I became a volunteer as an adult. And, um, and in that 15 years, I, um, I felt like there was no hope for me, that there was no, I did feel very desolate during that time because the abuse was the only way of life that I knew. It was what love meant to me because these these boys grew up to be men that were, I was told they're like uncles to me and they were later protectors in my life. And so 
abuse was uh, synonymous um, with love for me. And, and I didn't know the difference. And so at 14 years old, I was, I was raised in an alcoholic home. I always say I come from a long line of Baptist alcoholics. Um, Daddy was a um, professed uh, drinking alcoholic and mama was a black belt Southern Baptist. I knew everything that was gonna send me to hell. I didn't know nothing that was gonna keep me out of it. And um, so I was born into this alcoholic home. Now at three years old, the abuse has started. And my dad, everything about our home life was about trying to get him sober. And to the extent that my mom would even say to us at times, hey, let's gargle in some whiskey and we'll smell like alcohol when he comes home. And then he'll know what it's like to live, you know, he'll know what it's like to live with him and maybe that'll make him stop and so codependency became very much a part of my life early on because our whole world evolved around daddy's drinking and us trying to stop it um at at 13 years old my parents when i was 13 they divorced um but because we owned property with two houses on it they literally divorced and then daddy moved in next door and that was almost like this now instead of having to help him down the hall to get to the bed we had to help him across the yard to get um to the other house so my mom and i um at the about 10 9 10 month mark after their divorce my mom and i moved into an apartment six miles away my brother stayed there his job was nearby he was 18 at the time i was 14 and my daddy on February 2nd, 1976, literally took one last fatal sip of a beer and it killed him and he died with a cigarette in his hand. So all we knew was that there was a fire and they found a body. And so now this kid that's now been being abused for 11 years now has no father, now has died tragically, it seems. and. Um, so back then, death certificates were not a very quick thing. It took about 30, 45 days for us to find out later that it was alcohol poisoning. He literally died from an overdose of beer, but because of the cigarette in his hand, um, it started the fire. Well, now the story was out that he died in a fire and I wasn't about to even at 14, I, I wasn't about to go back to school and say, oh, snap, um, he didn't die in a fire. He died of alcoholism. So I told that story so many times for the next 20 years that my dad died in a fire that I started to believe it. And during that 20 years, I began to drink at around that same time frame. I don't really remember if it was right before he died or right after he died. I know that I started drinking during that window of time. And I drank daily. I, 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 cannot, I cannot describe um, the person that I once was, that, that from 14 to 34, I barely drew a sober breath. I was high on something almost every waking moment of my life. And so on September 10th, and a lot of bad relationships, two bad marriages, both marriages were abusive, one that was uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally abusive. 
Um, the other one wasn't physical, but it was uh, a terrifying kind of abuse that I was always on edge. And, and I only, you know, I met him and married him two months later and, um, <laughs> and divorced him four months later. Um, we actually had chips left over from the reception that were still fresh. Um, you just can't write comedy like this, girls. Um, <laughs> I see Professor just like, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Um, so I actually had chips that were still fresh the day I moved out. But um, it started heading down the same path as the first marriage that was very physically abusive, and it looked like this one was going to be. But then I realized, wait a minute, I've had two abusive marriages, and the only common denominator between those two men was me. And so I started seeking counseling and realized that's when I kind of uncovered. I never had forgotten what happened to me as a child. I just had no idea that it had any impact on my adult life. And I'm now 28, um, almost 29 years old and going through my second divorce and, and not even realizing, not even knowing that this childhood trauma and this childhood abuse had anything to do with my life in that day. And um, so I went through a couple of years of uh, counseling, but still drinking and still using uh, recreational drugs. And, uh, and then that was during that time that I thought, hmm, you know, working um, a day job with benefits and a decent salary um, is, is for somebody else. I would really like to go on the road and do comedy. And uh, I always say, it, so I sold everything I owned and took that $200 and put it in the bank and then hit the road to comedy. And uh, so that was in 1991 that I started comedy. A year later, I had done enough open mics and enough showcases for comedy clubs that I actually started being offered work. So I quit my day job and um, the next 10 years, I paid my bills doing comedy. The first five of those years, I was still drinking and still a little crazy, but it went well four years. And so it was in September of 1995, September 10th, 1995. I pray I never forget that day and that moment. I surrendered my life to God at a 12-step recovery meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous because um, it just, you know, they seemed really fun. And uh, I didn't even really believe I was an alcoholic. I just knew... I didn't want to turn out like my dad, and I didn't want to um, continue with the life that I had because a lot of other bad relationships, I mean, I hardly ever met a man that didn't stalk me or dated. I never hardly ever dated a man that didn't stalk me when it was over because I could just pick them. And um, so then I had to go back into counseling after this another failed relationship, and this was the weekend that I got sober. Uh, thank God for that failed relationship because he actually put the fear of God and the fear of death in me, um, threatening me that weekend. And that's what drove me um, to get sober. Now, this is 1995. I didn't come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior till July 12th, 2001. So in that next few years, I um, met my husband, uh, who I'm still married to today. I met him, met him in AA. I mean, I don't recommend that, girls. Um, <laughs> going to a recovery, look, looking for a healthy relationships, kind of like going to a mud hole, looking for a clean drink of water. It's not there. It's really not there. Um, but we found it. We actually grew into it. Um, 
it's a miracle we haven't smothered each other in our sleep, but we haven't. And um, so we're still married today. Um, but I have to share all that to share this. So I came to understand God as this new understanding of that he was not out to get me, that he was not out to smite me for all the wrongs that I felt like I had done because I blamed myself for a lot of the, the wrongdoing, even as a child. And what God wanted me to see was that, um, well, and I had a stepfather who was very, very good to me. He was the first man um, that held a role of authority in my life. And I was an adult by the time he came along into my life, but he was the first man that held that role of authority that had not abused me. And I adored him and he was a good Christian man. And 18 years that he was my dad, my pops, as I called him. And then he died with pancreatic cancer in 1999. And I shook my fist at God and what are you doing? And how could you do this? How could you take him? And I saw him as this mighty man of God. And God broke me in that next year, year, year and a half, because I needed to see him as a mere man who served a mighty God. And through that couple of years, I started seeking um, Bible study. I mean, I could quote the Bible with the best of them, but I had never read the Bible. And, and it was July 12th, 2001, as a part of a, of a home Bible study. And we went, there was a lot, a lot of the ladies, we went to a Joyce Meyer conference that I surrendered and gave my life wholly and completely to Christ on the floor of Phillips Arena. Now, I was doing all this Bible study and um, in praising the Lord, my little girl and I, she was three years old at the time. We were singing, you know, praise songs on Sunday night at Bible study. And I'd get a gig at the Atlanta Punchline going there because like a sailor on Tuesday. Because I had read enough to read that Paul had said he was a Jew to a Jew and a Greek to a Greek. So I was going to the Punchline being a heathen to a heathen. I thought that's what he meant. But <laughs> turns out. He didn't. Um, and so I gave my life wholly and completely to Christ. And on the floor of that um, basketball arena that night at a Joyce Meyer conference, as clear as I've ever heard the Spirit of God speak to my spirit, I heard, I want your mind. I want your pocketbook. I want your TV. I want your radio. And I want that mouth. And I knew, didn't happen in that moment, but just days later, I knew God was asking me to lay the microphone down because I did not have a mouth pleasing to God. And um, it took about three years uh, and I quit comedy. I quit comedy altogether during that time. I was not working on the road at that point, but I was working um, locally, working the Atlanta Punchline. I quit all of that. And it took about three years. I always say that during that time, God silenced my mouth. I'm sorry I'll miss that jig because that's up. But um, <laughs> he silenced my mouth during that time because I realized what was coming out of my mouth was what was hidden in my heart. And I still had so much anger and so much bitterness. And I wanted those people that had abused me and hurt me. I wanted them dead. And I didn't want them forgiven. And so over the course of those next few years doing Bible study, God really started to dig and scrape that 
junk out of my heart and showed me that truly out of the heart the mouth speaks and out of the heart flow all the issues of life and I was stone cold sober but I had me some issues of life and uh, other addictions even like internet games I know some of y'all like oh don't don't start going on my candy crush but I had <laughs> so many addictions with food and cokes I would drink like five to ten cokes a day during that time and God just needed me to to just sit with him and get with him and be with him and it just mirac I'm, I'm telling you it was just miraculous in the transformation that I went from being a a girl that grew up dirt poor in a in a house that my granddaddy built he built it with a hammer and ten penny nails at 84 years old that we couldn't even afford siding for the house we had roofing tar paper on the side of it. that was our siding to promiscuity to drugs and alcohol to two bad abusive marriages to comedy but then with comedy came all the drinking and the partying to saved sanctified washed clean washed white as snow and five years ago this month may 18th was five years ago that i walked away from a ministry that i had helped build because god said so and it didn't make any sense to anybody at the time they thought that i was upset about uh, a change that had been made and i walked away from something i helped build for 12 years into nothing i had no idea what god was doing i knew he was calling me to do stand-up comedy again i knew it was to be in a church arena I knew it was to tell my story, that it was to tell his story, to tell my story for his glory. I knew all that, but I was 220 pounds. I didn't know how in the world that could happen because I was I was a little bitty size too when I was a club comic, and you know I was now a Christian comic. I was still I was still a two. It just had a big old X on it, but I could not imagine myself at that size getting back on stage. But May 18, 2015, I resigned with no real reason or explanation other than because God is telling me to. And within three weeks after that resignation, I got a text message one night. And because Shonda Pierce had seen me five months earlier and she told me she was going to take me on tour with her, but nothing had come of that. Three weeks after I turned in my resignation from this ministry, I get a text from Shonda Pierce from somebody with Shonda saying, Shonda wants to see you. And the next thing I know, she, I meet her for dinner. She slaps her hand on my leg and says, I hear you left that ministry. Get your calendar out, baby. I'm going to fill it up. And by October of that year, I had done eight shows, three tours with Shonda. And now all of a sudden, I've got credits in the Christian arena and people are calling left and right. And in those last few years at that theater ministry, y'all, I was in front of about a thousand people a year. So in three years, about 3,000 people. In three years, now it's been five now, but at the three-year mark, in Christian comedy, I had already been, God had put me in front of over 35,000 people in three years. Now it's close to 50,000. I, I really have stopped counting. 
he's a miracle worker, y'all. And, and I, I will close with this. One of the things that I had to learn during this process, that the way, the way to not become a desolate woman after abuse is to trust him, not just believe in him, but to believe him, that believe every word that, that comes from the mouth of God, that he is truly the bread of life. And I had to find um, one of my favorite scriptures is Revelation 12, 11, which says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And I used to think, oh, well, that's cool because I got this powerful testimony. You know, I, I've got a lot to say about, you know, what God has done. And God showed me, no, okay, that's just your story. And, and it took a really big God to overcome that kind of story from 15 years of child abuse, 20 years of alcohol abuse, 10 years of domestic violence, smoking, all these things, that it took a big God to overcome that, but that the word of his testimony is his word planted in my heart. It's studying the word with Shannon. It's studying the word with Professor Proverbs. It's getting that word in us to where now I can testify that the word of my testimony is that he heard my cry from that miry pit and lifted my feet out of the clay and that was my life and set my feet on solid rock, which is the word of God that I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath. I can lend to many nations, but I will never again have to borrow, that I will choose every day whom I will serve. And for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. I will praise him for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O oh Lord. I know them very well. And that on May 18th, 2015, when I heard the voice of the Lord say, who shall we send? who will go for us, that at 220 pounds, a stay-at-home homeschool mom on food stamps, broke as a joke, that I said, here my Lord, send me every day since. God bless y'all. I love you. I love your Shannon. Oh, preach. I love that. Oh my goodness. That is amazing. Look, Kay, do you see her? She's got your card. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That is amazing. Uh, what a testimony. It's so, you know, it's amazing when you think of, you know, all you've overcome, all you've been through, and how often do we talk about the fact that, you know, is a lot of it just about that, you know, we keep getting up. Isn't that, that's what it is. We've talked about it, you know he who wins is the one who keeps getting up, keep getting up and keep going forward. And uh, wow. And how in the world you have been through all of that and you are so stinking funny. I am just like, well, you know, comedy gets us through a lot. Humor saves our life, right? And medication. No. Prayer and meditation. Medication. Oh, oh medication. Well, that too. You know, hey, Amazing. I am not on. Drugs. You know, you always need some meditation, and sometimes you need some medication. So there you go. Hey, uh, no problem. Okay, all right. Well, so girls, text back to me, and I'll watch the. Board. I, I sent it back. I'm so tech savvy now. Okay. Um. All right, girls. So we are in Second uh, Samuel chapter 13. We have gotten through the story of Tamar, and I believe we are at chapter 13, verse. What does it say? 23. All right. And so we're just going to start right there. 
Um, and if you have your Bible or it's like a few steps away from you, go get it because I do want you reading along with me because there's going to be some parts, especially um, when Joab sends the woman to talk to David. I want you to be able to read along with me, um, whether it's your phone or your Bible or whatever. So, um, all right. So 2 Samuel 13, 23, let me pray. And then we're just going to um, open the word together. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. And Lord, I thank you for K Dodd. I thank you, Lord, that um, you have uh, beautifully woven together and used all that she has been through for your glory. And uh, Lord, she is a blessing to me and she is a blessing to so many. And so God, I pray that you would pour out blessing on her and that you would expand her ministry. Um, so many women need to laugh. Life is hard. And Lord, especially now, we have no idea what women are going through, um, whether they are alone or with a family. Um, we know, Lord, that some families are broken, and it would be very hard to be um, in a home 24-7 with that. And so, Lord, I lift up women right now who are enduring domestic violence, and I lift up those that are enduring addiction in this isolation and loneliness. And so, God, I just pray that we would reach out to one another, that we would love each other the best we can. Speak to us through your scripture, Lord. Um, and Lord, help us just to keep getting up. You love us. We have a relationship. It's about the process, not necessarily an outcome. And so, God, we love you. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 23. Here we go. It says, after two full years, Absalom had sheep... After two full years, Absalom had sheep shares at Bel Hazer, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now, do you remember what happened? Remember, Tamar has been raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Do you remember that? And she was absolutely disgraced. She walked through the streets, um, brokenhearted, in disgrace. She went to her brother, Absalom, if you remember, um, in a nutshell, David did what? Nothing. Okay, absolutely nothing. Absalom basically did nothing for two years, except he would not speak to Amnon. So for two years, Amnon and Absalom have not been speaking. David is informed of it, but he's done a big fat zero. And Tamar is living with Absalom. And it says basically, right, she became a desolate woman. And so that's what has happened? Two years later now, it says that Absalom had sheep shears. Now, this is so interesting to me. You're like, how could that be interesting to you, Shannon? Why are you even stopping right there? Well, it is interesting to me because do you remember I've taught you about the time of shearing sheep before? It was in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Do you remember the whole scene with Nabal? If you weren't with me, okay, it is when David is running for his life and he is out hiding. You know, Saul has been chasing him 24-7. And if you remember, he and his men have been out in the wilderness and they have been protecting the sheep of a wealthy man by the name of Nabal. And in chapter 25 in 1 Samuel, it talks about that it was time to shear his sheep, which was a huge celebration. It is the time where they're recognizing God's blessing. Um, it's a uh, 
a huge banquet. Everybody came and ate together. And it was typically a time where that person would be very generous and especially to guys who had been protecting his sheep. So if you remember, David sends servants to Nabal asking uh, for anything um, that, you know, he could give. And so Nabal insults David. Do you remember this? He's like, David, who's stinking David? Who's this Jesse son? There are rebels all over the place. And if you remember, Samuel had just died. And so David was in a very hard place. All of this time, he had been holding back. Remember, he's had opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. So he has incredible self-control. But now this one guy, by the way, what does Nabal's name mean? Do you remember? I can see your mouth. His name means fool. Okay, his name meant fool. So here this fool is insulting David. And David's like, listen, it's one thing to be the enemy of Saul the king. It's one thing to be running from the king. It's another thing for me to take an insult from this fool. And so if you remember, David tells his men, mount up, I'm packing, let's go. And they are about to go wipe out Nabal and all of his stinking family. And who ends up being the hero or the heroine? Do you remember? Abigail, his wife, runs out, meets David, and said, talks him off the ledge. Okay, bottom line, she talks him off the ledge. How is she so good at that? Well, she's married to a stinking fool. How many times do you think she talked him off the ledge? So if there was anyone perfect for this job, it was her. And she talks David down and says, basically, you're too good for this. You don't want this on your record. Do not do such a thing. And she gives gifts to David and his servants. In the meantime, I don't know if you remember, but she comes home and Nabal is drunk because they're still partying. So she doesn't bring it up because it's not the best time to bring something up when someone's wasted. So she waits till the next morning and she tells him what happened. Basically, you nearly got us all killed, but I saved the day. And the story goes to tell us that bottom line, he dropped dead. And when he did, David heard about it. And guess what David did? David knows a good woman when he sees one, right? He sent word and he ended up marrying Abigail. All right. Now look at this. Do you see any similarities? So here we have this time of sheep sharing. On one hand, David was the one insulted, humiliated, and disrespected by Nabal. And his name means fool. Look at 2 Samuel 13, 13. Do you remember what Tamar said to, uh, to Amnon when she was trying to get him not to attack her? Do you see it? If you see it, give me a thumbs up. She literally says, do not do this. Okay, first she says, do not do this wicked thing in Israel. And then she says, do not do this or you will be a fool in Israel. Isn't that interesting? So we have this whole ironic scene that Absalom is about to take his revenge. He has been insulted. He is going to come in. His family has been insulted. His sister, 
And he is going to come in and use this time of sheep shearing to get his revenge because Amnon is a what? Is a fool in Israel. I just find things like that really interesting. And so I wanted you to see the connection. It goes on to say, and Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go out. He would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Do you ever get the feeling that David's a little bit of a pushover when it comes to his kids? Absalom invites David. Why? You know, I'm like, did he know he would decline? I'm thinking he probably did. I'm thinking this was an entire show. I think he was pretty sure that his father would decline and his father gave the reason we should not all come. If I come, if the king comes to your party, I don't come alone. I come with a lot. And if I come, it is going to be too much. It's going to be too much of a burden for you. So thanks for the invitation, but no. So then Absalom says, well, if you can't come, then at least send the heir apparent, at least send uh, the crowned prince and all of my brothers. Why? This is a great celebration. This needs to be a great social event. It can't be a great social event if all the princes aren't there. And so he's saying, please do that because the bottom line is if David tells Amnon to go, what? He goes. Amnon can't anymore uh, refuse what David tells him to do than Tamar could have refused what he said when he said, go take care of your brother. The word of the king goes. And so it says, then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Do you see any uh, similarities in this story as well? Do you see any similarities right now in Absalom to his father David again? What does he do? He's like, hey, when all else fails, get them drunk. And if we can get him drunk and he won't be paying attention, his heart will be merry, life is a party, then he tells his servants to kill him. Isn't that interesting? Just like his dad. He wants somebody else to do the dirty work and he has his servants kill Amnon. And I cannot even imagine what the scene was right there with all the princes. And it says that immediately they all ran from the place, got on their mules and headed home. While they were on the way, news came to David. News travels fast. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. 
Can you imagine getting that info? Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, who is that? You're like, Shannon, I don't know who that is. It's been two weeks since you talked about him. Jonadab was his cousin. Do you remember the guy that came up with the plan? Amnon's cousin. The guy that came up with the whole plan telling Amnon to play sick and the whole bit. He's the one that was BFFs with Amnon, hanging out, enjoying all of the royalty and none of the responsibility. And here he is, and it says this. It says, um, but Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let my lord the king so take it to heart to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So bottom line, the first report was false. But do you not find it curious that Jonadab, and I'm going to unmute you, Brian, in case you want to interrupt me, because are, are you muted? I'm muted. Oh, you're not muted. Okay. Do you not find it so interesting that Jonadab puts himself in this position? So my question is, you know, as we were looking at this, was he there? I'm assuming he was there at the party because, I mean, he's the cousin and this is the biggest party of the time. Was he there? And then my thought is, if he was so buddy-buddy with Amnon, he would have been right with Amnon, right at his side. How in the world did he escape? unscathed right and how did he get out because he seems to get to david really before any of the other princes in the story and he seems to say right here he goes this has been absalom's plan all along mm -hmm. and so it's really interesting and then down in verse 35 he says so he says don't worry about it you've gotten a false report that is not what happened you haven't lost all your sons Amnon is dead because Absalom has been wanting to kill him from the get-go. Um, and see, look, my words are right because here come all the princes. So it reminds me of those guys that set themselves up in a crisis to be the one with the good news, to be the one who knows. See, my words are right, David. Here come all of your sons. He seems like such a scoundrel. What do you think? Oh, I agree. He's a scoundrel. He's playing both sides. He, if, if he knew, what, and he did, that Amnon was going to be killed, that Absalom has been scheming for two years, he's implicated because he doesn't tell David, right? Right. Yeah, so, so he set himself up as, you know, absolutely. kind of David's right-hand guy. Yeah, he does. It's interesting when you draw the parallels with the Uriah story, which I think is, is absolutely uh, perfect. It's also interesting to compare the two stories of Tamar and Amnon, because David was the go-between in getting Tamar to Amnon, and David is the go-between to get Amnon to the celebration with Absalom. Absolutely. I think that's part of his grieving later, yeah. because he knows that he's, his words allowed yeah. them to be where they were. Yeah. Talk yeah. about regret, right? Mm -hmm. 
In verse 14, it says, but Absalom fled and the young men who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come as your servant said, so it has come about. So Jonadab basically says, David, lift your eyes. Your, your sons are coming. I'm right. They're not dead. So look, look, they're all coming. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. So can you imagine this picture? They're all running for their lives. There's been a massacre at the party. There's been an assassination right in front of their eyes. They all fled with their lives, rushing back home. They get there. They come to David. These princes jump off their uh, mules, and they all cry. There is a great outcry. It says, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Gesher. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Gesher and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Man, we're going to break this apart because this is a doozy. So Absalom fled to Gesher. Um, you have to remember the details. Uh, there was a point where I told you about all the wives of David and their sons. And Absalom was one of those sons that was basically, he was the son of one of the uh, princesses of Gesher. Remember, it was a political marriage. It was a nation to the north. And David literally entered into a political marriage to tighten up his empire, to bring peace. And he married one of those princesses. Her son was Absalom and her daughter was Tamar. And so what has happened is Absalom has fled back to his maternal grandfather, who is King and Gesher, and he has taken refuge there. He ends up being there for about three years. It goes on to say that David mourned over his son day by day. Now here's the question for you. What son is he mourning? We've had good discussion about this. What son is he mourning? Because in one way you can read it and think, well, the scripture just said that he told us Absalom has run away and he is in exile for three years and he mourns over his son. I don't believe he's mourning over Absalom. He's mourning over Amnon day after day after day. And in verse 39, I don't know if your Bible say it, Look at your footnotes and see if in verse 39, where it says the spirit of David, it says, uh, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Do you have a footnote there at the bottom of your Bible? Because it'll basically say there's an option in the Vulgate. It'll say, but it could be, and the spirit of the king or the spirit of David ceased to go out. To Absalom. Do you see that? Cease to go out. And when you look at it too, the word comforted literally means to be sorry or to console oneself. Okay? To be sorry or to console oneself. I think this area is hard to understand. The way I see it 
is that Absalom has run to Gesher. He is going to be there for three years. And during those three years, David is constantly mourning over the death of Amnon. He is mourning day and day and day. And in that mourning, in that his attempt to console himself, he refuses to go or his soul refuses to go to Absalom. Does that make sense? Okay. There is a bitterness happening here. In chapter 14, it says this, now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Uh, I think Brian told me today as we were looking at this, that it can actually, that preposition to can actually be against. So let's read it that way. Okay, it can be either one. But in context of what we're seeing, let's read it. It says, so now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out against Absalom. All right. So what is happening? Absalom has killed Amnon, his brother. He has fled and he's been gone for three years. And in those three years, David is mourning over Amnon. He is probably regretting um, allowing Amnon to go to the party. His heart is against Absalom, and there is this break in father and son. There is this divide, and I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder, what was it like for Absalom and Gesher, and what could some of the conversations have been there, and uh, whatever it was, Joab was very concerned about the situation between David and Absalom. Do you have any insights about that, Brian? Oh, sorry, I was just thinking of, of the roles of the two grandfathers <laughs> with Bathsheba, with Ahithophel, and uh, yeah, how that would come back to bite David with, as he advised Absalom against. So you got the grandfathers who, are, who want revenge on David. And we were talking earlier today about whether Absalom really wanted David to show up to the party. And the more I think about it with this urging, I don't know. I'm wondering if he really did want David to be there to see how justice would be enacted. And I wonder if that wouldn't have also been the place where he usurped the throne uh, and maybe even taken his own father's life. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, later what on. He, what would he have done if he would have caught, as we read the story later on here, if he would have caught David? Yeah. So bottom line, we've got a father and a son totally at odds, not coming together at all. And if you remember, Joab is David's commander. And I think Joab has good intentions. He doesn't always have great ideas or great, great plans. But whatever is happening, Joab, as the commander in Israel, sees that not only is this not good for David, this is not good for the kingdom, whatever it is whether or not he is worried that this break will eventually cause Absalom to uh, rebel, or if he's worried that what is going on with Absalom and Gesher will cause Gesher to rise up and rebel, we don't know. Or if he just sees this taking its toll on David, whatever it is, Joab decides that he needs to do something about it. So he intercedes. <laughs> I can't help it. This story kind of makes me laugh because Joab knows David better than anyone. 
And he knows that David is a real big sucker for a sappy story. Do we not know this? Was Joab not aware that Nathan came in and told David the sappiest story about a poor man with his lamb and a rich man with all of these sheep and that the rich man had guests over and he went and killed the only lamb of the poor guy and served him up to his company. And can you believe he did that? And David being so passionate, it's like, that is evil. That man deserves to die. And that story sucked David in. And then what did Nathan say to him? You're that man, you the man, right? You took Bathsheba, you took Uriah's wife. And so Joab was there. So Joab is trying to set this up. And with Nathan the prophet, God sent him. In this case, Joab is trying to get it done. Now, I don't know if y'all know anything about the Enneagram, but I start laughing because I'm like, well, obviously Joab is a two. He's the helper. He's trying to come in and, and help everybody when he hasn't been invited into that scene at all, but he interjects himself in there because he's the helper. So he sets up this entire story, this sham, so that he can pull David in and then in a certain way, say you the man, okay? So in your Bibles, look at chapter 14, verse two. It says, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise old woman. So when I read the story, I want you in your Bible to underline or highlight, look at all the descriptions in this that are attempting to create passion in David. Because what do we know about David? He is a passionate dude, all right? It's what makes him so great, and it's what gets him into stinking trouble. Can I get an amen? I can see y'all's faces. I'm looking at all of you, okay? And so Joab knows exactly, because he literally fills the woman's mouth with words, tells her exactly what to say, because he knows how to pull in the passion and romantic side of David. So listen to this. Every time I say a description of her, mark it. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise, which also means old, woman, and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning. How many days for the dead? Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put all the words in her mouth. So, so far we know she's old and we know that she is gonna show up looking pretty sad and ratty and that she is going to be a mourner, look like a mourner. She is in agony, her heart is broken. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground. So what is she? Completely humble, broken, and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, alas, I am a widow. Okay, there's another description. An old lady who's mourning, she's humble, she's broken, and she ain't got nobody. All right, she's a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant, meaning her, had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. 
and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against me, basically she's saying, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus, they would quench my coal. What does that mean? They're taking the only son I have left. The love of my life. They're going to put out this light. And they're going to leave my husband no name or remnant. So in other words, she's like, I'm a widow. I had two sons. One killed the other. If you take the remaining son, I am going to be left with nothing. I'm going to be left desolate. What do we know about David? I truly think I do. I think David cares about his people. I think he's a passionate man and he is totally buying this story, hook, line, and sinker. It says, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. In Shannon words, it says this, I know this is my fault. I am so sorry. I hate to put you in this horrible position. I mean, are you, is she just laying it on thick or what? The king says, if anyone says anything to you, you poor baby, you sweet thing. If anyone gives you a hard time, you bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Woo, David's such the protector. And then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. And he says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Bam, he just got entrapped. Do you understand what is happening here? It is then that the woman says to him, please let me speak a word to my Lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman says, well, considering all this that we've just talked about, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Say what? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home. Holy spamoli. He just got trapped. Do you understand what she did? Because she absolutely spoke to his passion in his heart. The bottom line, David wasn't there to see what happened in the field. He has no idea what happened between these boys. He hasn't called to see if there are witnesses. He hasn't followed any law as if, if there weren't witnesses, what do you do? What has happened? He's heard one side of the story from an old woman who looks pitiful, who seems humble, who is a, a widow, who has absolutely stirred up all of his emotion, and he literally took the law and put it over here and made a choice. And she said, well, can I ask you something? If you can do that for me, then why have you not brought your son home? If you're willing just to overlook the details or the facts of this event, then why can't you just make a choice to bring your boy home? 
Whew. And then she really pours it on. She says this, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. What is she saying in our words? What do you think that means? Think about that before I tell you. She's like, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. She's like, listen, do this. Don't wait too long. Why? Don't wait until it's too late. Until you die and you can't fix it. Bring him home. But God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Wow, now she's getting really bossy. She's like, listen, why, why haven't you brought your son home? And don't wait too long, like get it fixed. Oh, and by the way, you know, God is a God of grace. He seems to always find a way to bring the banished back to him. Ooh. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the King, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform the request of his servant for the King will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my Lord, the King will set me at rest for my Lord. The King is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Man, this woman is good. You know, do you see? She is completely pouring it on to David. You are like an angel. Uh, whatever you say goes, the Lord is with you. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what, David's no dummy. He, he's got it. Now he knows. Okay, fool me once. Shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you, whatever. Shame, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. He's had two stories now and he's fallen for both of them. He says, all right, let me ask you something. This is Hoffpower version, verse 18. Let me ask you something. And you better tell me the truth. Was Joab behind this? And what does she say? She says, yes, he was. Was Joab behind this? Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my Lord, the king, one cannot turn the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has said. Oh, you caught me. You are so smart. Nobody can get one over on you, David. It was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth in order to change the course of things. I love that. I highlighted that because whatever it was going on, not what, I mean, we know what it was, but whatever the situation was with Absalom being in exile for three years and David remaining home, whatever that was causing, which it was whether fear of rebellion or a bitterness rising up in David and he was distracted from ruling or whatever, Joab sees because he cares about the nation of Israel, he is the great commander, he sees that this is not headed in a good direction. Have you ever been in that situation? You're like, oh man, the way this situation is, it is not headed in a good, this is not good. Something needs to be done. And if you're that helper, sometimes you jump in whether you were asked or not, and I do believe that is what Joab does. 
So then the king calls Joab in and says, behold, I grant this. Go back, get the young man Absalom. <laughs> I wish I could have been there for the next part because bottom line, it says that Joab falls on the ground, lays prostrate. I think he has been holding his breath backstage while this woman has been telling that story because it could have gone really bad. I'm gonna tell you. I mean, David has the ability of life and death. He's hoping he knows David. <laughs> He's hoping this is a good idea, but when David finally gives him permission to go get Absalom, Joab falls on the ground and basically praises him. Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. My Lord the King is that the King has granted the request of his servant. Now, it goes on to say, so Joab arose. I'm almost done. So Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And here's where we're gonna kind of end today. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come in my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So here this helper is like, this is not headed in the right direction. Something needs to be done, but what do we know? Can you truly force reconciliation? Can you force it? So he brings him home and he pardons him. So he, he doesn't die for the premeditated murder that he did on Amnon, but he says, I will not see you. My last thought for this is there's not a hero in the bunch, okay? In these stories that I'm gonna tell you. It's a bunch of flawed human beings. And what I would really like for you to do is start reading these stories and realize I have been every one of these people at different points and times in my life, all right? And what we see is when you look at David at the beginning, the fact that he seemed so passive by letting Tamar go take care of Amnon and then she gets raped and then he doesn't do anything about it. We never see him go in and check on Tamar. It seems that at first, David is so passive, so lenient with his kids. I mean, everybody's stinking run, running amok. And now look what he's like. Now he's flipped almost to a complete 180, where now it almost seems like he is coming back with something so harsh like, you can come back, but you will never see my face. And I just wonder, because I've seen it to where you have parents who at times are just, when they're growing up, they're just so stinking lenient and everybody's running amok and the kids grow up to be basically a lot of times a chip off the old block of what they're watching. And then when all of the fruit of that starts coming out, all of a sudden you see the parents at times go, oh, no. And now they draw a line in the sand mm -hmm. and it can seem so harsh. So now you're gonna stand up and do something? You didn't do a darn thing when Amnon raped Tamar. You didn't do a darn thing to address the fact that Absalom, Absalom and Amnon haven't been talking for two years. You have allowed Absalom to be in um, 
Gesher for three years, but now you're going to bring him back and not see his face. And what we're going to see when we come back next week, we are going to see a big hot mess where this becomes so volatile that it wouldn't matter if Joab interceded because Amnon and David will not be, they may be in the same city, but they will never be on the same page. You got me? And it is going to get bad. So the next section I want you to read is starting in 14 and it's verse 25 and it starts to describe Absalom. So here's your homework. Read through there and look at all the descriptions of Absalom and try to imagine what he is like, what he is feeling, how he feels justified in what he has done. Put yourself in both David's shoes and Absalom's shoes and then start to think, huh, man, this family stuff is complicated. All right. And so anyway, I want you to do that. Um, Brian, you got any thoughts before we go? Repeat homework. Uh, go through. So you're going to be chapter 14. And I stopped at verse 25. So we're going to go through chapter 15. So 1425, read through chapter 15. That's what we'll cover. But I want you to kind of get a feel for what you think Absalom is like. Like, for example, it's going to tell you his hair is so massive that every year he cuts his hair and he weighs it. Who the heck weighs their hair? I mean, was he going to give to locks of love? Or I mean, like, why? Why are you, why are you weighing your hair? Right? So what kind of guy do you think he is? How is he similar to David? How is he different? Um, put yourself and meditate on this. Get in this story. Um, because you're about to see a son absolutely revolt against his father. Okay? I don't want to steal. I don't know what you're teaching next week. But I do want to make this comment, especially the description that there's no blemish in him. Mm. I, it's a sacrifice term, right? The sacrifice had to be perfect. Yeah. And, uh, I'm wondering if it's a foreshadowing that he's about to be sacrificed on the altar of his ego. Wow. Well, anyways, you can use that if you want. Nobody will remember next week anyways. So I can steal that, put then, my name on it? Yep. Also, uh, just back to the, well, two more things really quick. How many times is David's name used in chapter 14? I he's didn't count it. Did you? He's always referred to as the king. And the, the narrator there, if we read it carefully, I think he's trying to get our attention that, that, that this is no longer Davy, you know, our friend Dave, the giant killer. This is David the king. And or so, maybe not David the father. Correct. Oh, that too. Yeah, because... David the king. Yeah, you're going to see that, especially at the very end there. Uh, his son did not see the face of the king. Yeah. So the whole time, all of a sudden, David has this... Well, and he had the right to, right? The, the uh, wise woman, she was respectful in his presence. I mean, some of that's flattery, of course, but it's also necessary flattery. And even yeah. Joab, when he comes in, he gets on his face to honor David, whether he wanted to or not, but he's respecting the fact that this is the king who has the power of life and death. So all of a sudden we see this little flip here that, that David is a man who has the power of life and death for Joab, for the woman, and for Absalom too. So but you yeah, kind of wonder, he, he almost raised them though without that Oh. respect of David and the king and now he's demanding it now right he's, 
precisely. It's like when we ignore all the little disrespects along the way, and then all of a sudden you have an adult child being disrespectful, and you go, dude, I am about to take you out of this world, right? It's almost like, well, you you didn't throw it down when you should have. Look what was birthed out of it, but now, hey, he, he is the king. I've shared before with you the proverb, if a man pampers his servant from youth, he will bring grief in the end. And uh, so whether it's a servant or a child, if you pamper your child from birth, they're going to bring grief. So one, one last thought, and I, I think it's so huge, and that is, um, so yeah, back in verse 14, 14, 14, God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. That's the gospel story right there. Yeah. And, and I, re, I, in my journal, I put, for God so loved the world that even a banished person is welcome in his kingdom. And uh, another verse there is Romans 5, 8. God commends his love towards us and that while we're yet sinners or his enemies, Christ died for us. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.